calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hey, dykes and dyke-adjacent folks and allies and maybe my uncle, who I learned sometimes listens to this podcast. Hi, how are you all? If you are a regular listener, you've probably noticed that we've been re-releasing some of our favorite episodes for the past couple of months while Melody and I took some time off. And as some of you, many of you might have assumed, after over five years of diking out every week, this podcast as you know it, Cue the Violin, is coming to an end. But... But please stay subscribed to this. It doesn't cost you anything. Just don't change anything. Simple, right? Um, because there's always the possibility of special episodes dropping here because there are so many incredible folks that I personally want to dike out with that I haven't yet. And if they come back around into the fold, who knows what will happen and if that will happen in this space. Also, if you have never been a patron of the podcast, or maybe you were a patron a while ago, uh, we were recording extra episodes every week, anywhere from uh, 20 to 50 minutes, sometimes uh, talking more about our personal lives and things we were watching things we were doing uh, outside of our regular episodes. And those all still exist on Patreon. And we're going to leave that up there a little while longer, because we are still, you know, struggling artists, comedians. And you can go to patreon.com slash diking out all that content will be there. If you miss listening to us, there's so much more there that maybe you haven't listened to yet. Also, this is where I'm going to tell you about an upcoming project of mine. Uh, I'm going to be launching a new podcast. What? Crazy, right? Can you believe it? Uh, probably because I've already launched a new podcast back in August. Some of you know I did a limited run uh, recapping the new-ish now Amazon Prime show, uh, A League of Their Own, where I got to recap episodes 
with some of the writers from that show. Even the showrunner did an episode. Uh, some people from behind the scenes and also other really cool people that I had so much fun recapping those episodes with. Uh, this new podcast actually has nothing to do with that, but I do want to remind you to watch or rewatch that show. I've been meeting so many people who are like, oh, I haven't watched it yet. And I'm like, yeah, that's why it hasn't been renewed for a second season. It hasn't been canceled, but it hasn't been renewed. And I think that's a hate crime against our community because it's too good. It is, I will say it's the most sapphic show on TV in the past year. And that's including anything on Showtime. Uh, I was going to say no shade, but all the shade, like it's, it's so sapphic. It's so good. And we should be supporting shows like this. I'm just so afraid, like if we don't watch it, they'll never let us have nice things again. Okay, so go watch support A League of Their Own. And if you like the show, you can check out my A League of Their Own recap podcast. But I also have a new podcast that's going to be coming out soon, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. I'll be giving you some more information uh, about it very, very soon. I'm so excited about it. It's going to be queer. It's going to be funny, at least I hope. And it's going to be very different than diking out. And I hope that some of you or most of you or all of you or all of you plus your friends follow me to that new podcast. But this is where you'll first hear about it. Also on my Instagram, if you're following me uh, at T-G-I-C-A-R-O-L-Y-N. And also a couple other things I want to tell you. So Cecilia and I, for New Year's Eve, we went on a little trip to Washington, D.C. to storm the... No, just kidding. We went to D.C. and uh, I wanted to bring in the New Year's at a bar called As You Are. And I hope that's a familiar name to a lot of you. It's uh, Joe McDaniel, who's been a past guest of the pod, and her partner, Coach. Uh, they opened a bar about a year ago called As You Are. It's in DC. And I want to encourage all of you to visit if you're ever in the area. And they are just so great. They've poured so much work into creating this beautiful queer space for the community. And it serves so many people in our community. Uh, they are so mindful with everything that they do. There's a cafe with great food downstairs and then a bar upstairs and then a space next to it that's more for like chilling and you could do video games and stuff if you're not into drinking or even if you are into drinking, you can drink and play video games, right? And on New Year's Eve, it was just like such a great crowd. It just felt very inclusive and good vibes and warm. And we liked it so much. We came back the next night for karaoke night, which was actually my birthday and uh, had a great time catching up with the both of them. So as you are in DC, check it out. Support queer spaces, especially queer spaces run by amazing folks. Okay. Uh, another big thing that's happened since you last heard from me was that uh, I was working on rewriting last year's, well, last last year's, the L Word 
Christmas Carol script with my friend and past guest, Naomi Reggae. So last year we put it on at Stonewall. And this year we moved it to a bigger venue in New York called Joe's Pub, where some of you might remember that I had my Dyke the Halls variety show there at the end of 2019. It's just like an iconic New York venue. I love it. There are a lot of queer performers that have shows there. And we had an amazing cast like last time. All past guests of this podcast, uh, Laquette Charnel Pringle nailed the role of Bet. It was giving me life uh, with our rewrites. It was truly bigger and better than last year. And we're planning an even bigger show for next year. So I hope that uh, all of you who are in the area at the end of the year will be able to be there for that. It's so much fun. It brings me so much joy. And speaking of the L word... Instead of re-releasing another Diking Out episode this week, I wanted to share a very, very cool interview that just released this week on the podcast Hot Takes and Deep Dives. My dear friend, Jess Rothschild, hosts that podcast. I've talked about it here so many times. She landed an interview with the one and only Eileen Shaken, as in the creator and showrunner of the original L Word. So if you've never listened to Justice Podcast, you are missing out, uh, first of all, because she has landed interviews with so many amazing daikons. Uh, one specific episode I'll point you to after you listen to this one you're about to hear is uh, an interview with Guinevere Turner. So if that name's not familiar, you might remember her more as uh, Gabby Duveau on the original L Word series, and you'll learn so much more about her. She's truly diconic, and that deserves a listen. But this episode you're about to hear, I learned a lot of great things, especially something about my all-time favorite scene uh, in the L Word. So I hope you enjoy listening to this, and I'll be back with uh, some updates soon. I hope you're all having a safe and happy new year and keeping it gay. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I 
wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Hot Takes and Deep Dives. And my next guest needs no introduction. She is the creator and showrunner behind The L Word. Hi, Eileen Chaikin. How are you? Hi. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. You're doing all right. All things are considered. All th- I know. So you just got back from a trip and you, you got COVID on the way home. Where were you on your vacation? It wasn't a vacation, um, although it was a wonderful, epic trip. Um, We were in Kenya for a couple of weeks, and then on the way home, stopped in London to see my daughter. And I think, you know, we're well and healthy throughout the entire time, and then got COVID at Heathrow on the way home. Oh, my God. You've been able to pinpoint it to Heathrow. I'm I'm, I'm being presumptuous, but... um, Heathrow was, um, can I like say whatever I want? What truly whatever you want. Yes. So he- Heathrow was a clusterfuck. Oh. Um, can I say that? Yes, of course. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just reacting. Um, right. It was just pre-holiday time. There were hordes and hordes of people. There were people coughing and sneezing and, and I was an idiot and didn't wear my mask. But this is so, interesting. Yeah. So you say you're, you're, so I know that you have twin daughters who were, how they old were. when you when you wrote the pilot or filmed the first season how old were they six and so they must be what in their mid-20s now they're 27 that is unbelievable so can it i is. ask like what they are doing like what they do for work one of them lives in los angeles she's an artist a sculptor and a furniture maker she went to RISD, which is my alma mater yes and her twin lives in London and is a chef, a fabulous chef. They're they're both gorgeous and brilliant. Now, I want to first kick things off by telling you a highlight of my holiday season this year and last year was going to see a staged reading. I'm not sure if you know that this is going on, maybe not because you were around the world, but it was going to see a staged reading written by my, my brilliant friend, Carolyn Bergier, of an L word Christmas carol that was she put up at Joe's pub. And this is a story of a Christmas carol that is told through the lens of the L word. And Dana, Kit and Jenny play the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future. Why do I not know about this? And why wasn't I there? Listen, this is an open invitation for Christmas 2023. Will okay. you please join us? And bring everyone you know. 
I will do everything I can to be there. Awesome. This is the second, last year she did it at Stonewall and this year it was at Joe's Pub. I and love that. I- incredible, right? And they're definitely doing it again. Like she has a brilliant cast of like comedians and the woman who played Bette is a Broadway actress and singer. And there's a moment where Bette sings. I'm not, there, there's, this, there's also a Bette and Tina sex scene. They're sitting in chairs, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> this just gets better and better. So I just had to I just had to share that with you. You know, you've described the L word as kind of like a whimsical and fun idea that you just wanted to get on the air. Like you didn't have that much experience in television. You really were behind the scenes as an executive. Can you kind of talk about your work? Like I was on the floor reading that you worked for Aaron Spelling. Like what describe the life of an executive versus a creative. Okay. So There's a little um, gap in there. I had been an executive the first 10 years of my career. I was an executive and, but I always intended, wanted, meant to, was born to be a writer. That's why I came to LA. I left my executive life and was a screenwriter, I think for almost 10 years. I had no experience writing television, but I had been writing movies, but I I had no experience nor any interest in doing television at the time. It was before television was cool. Um, (laughs) But I did, during my executive career, learn television at the feet of Aaron Spelling. So what shows, I mean, were you around for 90210? No, I left just before 90210. I actually, I started as a development executive, but wound up running the television department for spelling, probably during the most fallow part of his entire career. I mean, really, you know, he had the most extraordinary television career. When I was running his company, it it was just, it sucked. I mean, we, we tried to do some cool things and we did one or two, but it wasn't his heyday. Dynasty was on the air. I think Hotel was on the air. I tried to develop a bunch of cool shows. The The coolest thing I did at Spelling was I put together a show called Twin Peaks. Yeah. And so we did Twin Peaks, but that wasn't a classic Spelling show. That was a David Lynch show. And so was it your idea to get the two of them together? It was. Yeah. Wow. And what was your life? I guess describe a week or a day in the life of Eileen Chaikin. What were you in your twenties at this point as an executive? So here, here are the important things. You had to get up and go to an office job every day. You had to get dressed and think about what I was wearing. Mm-hmm. It was usually high heels and some little skirt, mini skirt thing. You know, I mean, it was. We're, we're talking back in the day and. Yeah. Even before I worked for Aaron Spelling, I had had several jobs in the entertainment industry. And mind you, this was the early 80s. It was pre-many things. It was pre-AIDS. It was pre-Me Too. It was when bad, abusive male behavior was the order of the day. And I was told all kinds of things. I was once told, I won't, I won't say where I was working at the time, but if you want to be successful at this company, you have to be fuckable, but you can't be fucked with. Um, so that was what Hollywood was like back then. Um, I have all kinds of lurid stories from my 10 years as an executive. 
please don't make me tell them. <laughs> well, this actually, so this spurs like two immediate questions. Um, the more kind of shallow question is, did any of this play into your decision to make Tina on the L word an executive? Yes. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. And secondly, were you out as an executive? I was. I didn't know how not to be out. It wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't a political decision. I just, I was kind of hapless. I was in a relationship. I was, I was actually in a 20 year relationship, the mother of my children. My children were not yet born. I went everywhere with her and I was just out. Like when you're saying that it was kind of like a boys club, obviously, and this was preemie too, did did being gay play a certain way? Like, do you think it helped you in any way? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that it was a challenge and it hurt in some ways, but I think it helped more than it hurt. Yeah. It, yeah, I would imagine it helping. Yeah. I mean, even just in like my career and like the people I've worked for, I noticed that in a way it helps. People were intrigued men were intrigued and it was something distinctive and memorable now i know that you based the jenny and marina the the germ of that relationship was actually based on your kind of coming out story like you you have this wild story of like crashing your car a few times in front of this cafe and uh-huh. you fell in love with or what i don't know if you fell in love but like you you basically uh you know had an affair with this cafe owner what drew you or what was the allure of going to this cafe every day after work as an executive I knew it was run by lesbians and I needed to come out. This was mid eighties. I didn't know how, how to do it. I know I knew no gay people and particularly I knew no lesbians. And so how did you find out that it was owned by two lesbians? I don't remember, but they were kind of LA famous. Ah, okay. What was the name of that cafe? Um, I, I'm not going to, it doesn't exist anymore, oh, okay. but I'm not going to say because I don't think I should name names. Okay. <laughs> they know who they are. I mean, it inspired the planet. I mean, clearly this is the yeah. inspiration for yeah. the planet. I mean, they should. No, I mean, there are loads of people yeah. in the L word who were inspired, not, not the actual basis, but who were inspiration for various characters. And most of them know it. And most of them are delighted by it, yeah. but I don't think it's fair to name them. <laughs> It's interesting. I interviewed this woman, Jackie Warner. She was a personal trainer. Um, She had a reality show called Workout on Bravo. That was basically all the drama of her running in this gym. And she was dating Jillian Michaels for a long period of time. So I was interviewing her about this TV show she did. And in the interview, she talked about how she and Jillian used to run these like lesbian nightclubs. And it sounded very much like the Don Dembo, like the rivalry. Like the the way she was describing it, I was like, girl, this was on TV. I've seen this. I, I know of them, but I don't know them. I used to have a hairdresser who was very friendly with one of them. Going back to Aaron's spelling, I know that you have this philosophy when arcing out a season-long arc that I've heard of this Eileen Shaken quote, burn it down, meaning like whatever you start, have, have, is this news to you? Um, yeah, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> 
well, oh, I'm inter- I'm interpreting it as where the way you arc out a season, wherever you start in the beginning, we're most likely going to end in the opposite direction by the time we hit the finale. Was this learned from the school of Aaron Spelling? Not explicitly, but I'm sure that in some ways I kind of absorbed lessons. Um, I never aimed to make the kind of television Aaron Spelling made, but I learned a great many things about storytelling, in particular, actually about the importance of post-production, about how you can fix a show in post, which was one of Aaron's great skills. But the way that you described a season arc is not exactly the way I've approached making television, but I'm sure that there's something to the idea that I really believe in surprises. I believe in dynamic change. I want things to happen. I want there always to be something gasp-worthy in every episode and in every season, and I want it to be consequential. I don't think there's any point in telling these stories if we're not just blowing people sideways. Right. You know, I'm curious where you stand nowadays on queer actors playing queer roles. Like, obviously, you've cast both. Like, this is still of a bit a bit of a controversial topic. Yeah. Like, where, where do you stand on that? And has your position on that evolved over the years? My position has definitely evolved. I'm kind of open and listening. I do believe that non-gay actors can play gay characters just as gay actors can play non-gay characters. And then I think there's a whole range of identity issues that are not fungible or permeable, and we know what they are, and we have to just accept intuitively that there are some things that are really necessary and important. The, the issue that I get called out on all the time is Max and the portrayal of trans characters. And I acknowledge that it was far from perfect. And there was a lack of understanding that reflected a whole cultural lack of understanding. I'm thrilled that in the new iteration of The L Word, Marja got to readdress that character and make the kinds of, I I don't want to say make amends, I just want to say acknowledge the present. The actor who plays Max, Daniel C., has spoken publicly about how he very much didn't feel part of the cast because he wasn't a, quote, woman, and how he was, you know, his account, how he was mistreated on set in different ways. Were you aware of this at the time? I was aware that there was friction and misunderstanding, Daniel was not at least out and openly trans at the time. I didn't even know what trans was when I started doing the L word. And we were talking about masculine identity. We were talking about shades of identity. And then as we came to know more, we were interested in the idea that Max would come out as trans. 
And we portrayed it in the way we knew. And we actually did quite a lot of research and met with a lot of FDM trans folks and learned what we thought was the truth. Right. But And that's separate from Daniel's personal experience, which also, I think, was, how shall I say, redressed in, in the current iteration. I think that Daniel had a chance to reconnect with a lot of the other actors he worked with mm -hmm. back in the day. And they all have evolved in many ways. And that was lovely to see. I know that Kate Menig had said, speaking of this scene with Max, which was actually really great, saying how she thought it would make the most sense because she had quite, I would say the Max character had like the most amount of scenes, probably with with Jenny and Shane since they lived together in the show. Yeah. She was saying how it really would make the most sense to be like, to bring up the topic of Jenny and mm -hmm. how she was trying to fight for that, but like didn't win that. What is the issue with, the, it seems like they really don't want to bring up Jenny. Like, do you have any insight? It's, it's not, it's not my call or my place to speak on. I don't make those decisions. I'm not in the, in the day to day of the show. Um, and I can only assume that, the writers and showrunner had something in particular they wanted to talk about, and it wasn't that. Take me into the casting of Jennifer Beals. Did she audition for the, the role? No. <laughs> um, no. But when Showtime ordered the L word from me, when they ordered the pilot, the president of the network is a man called Jerry Offsay, to whom I'm forever grateful, said... I just, you know, I want you to know that we're going to make this show. You just cast the best actors. You're not going to get anybody with a name to play this because, you know, we've already had this experience on Queer as Folk. Nobody wants to play gay characters. And I said to myself in my inner voice, I'm not sure that's going to be true with women, but great. You know, we'll cast the best actors. And then when the casting call first went out, we made some reaches. And the biggest reach was the dream casting. And I was just utterly flabbergasted when I heard that Jennifer was interested and wanted to meet. So she was in place first, and then you were casting a lot of people against her for the role of Tina. Yes. What was it that made all of you collectively decide on Laurel Holloman? It was that Laurel's audition was the best. She just felt like Tina and it was wonderful and they had chemistry, but there was something else. And I've always worked like this ever since. Jennifer felt it. Jennifer, um, Jennifer was making a movie at the time. So we did a couple of tapings and she called me afterwards and she said, there's just no question. This is the person that I connect with. And that's really important when you're making a television show. And you had said how your original plan was not to keep, was not to put Bet and Tina back together after season one. If the audience hadn't so deeply connected to the two of them, suppose the audience had been indifferent. Would you just have had them go off in different relationships? Like what was your broader plan with those two characters? It's, I don't know ultimately what would have happened, but I just had one intention. It had nothing to do with Tina or Laurel. 
it was just a story that I had planned to tell. And the story that I had planned to tell because I aimed to tell, you know, the lesbian stories, the, the stories that represented our lives and experience. And one of the stories I knew from experience was that there are any number of women who come out, who spend a couple of years in gay relationships and then go back to men. And Tina, you know, as we posited her, Bet was her first woman lover. She It hadn't occurred to her or at least not consciously that she might be gay. She was with a man when she met Beth. And that was the character that would spend three years in a relationship and then say, oh my God, no, I've got to go back to men. So that was what I was planning. Mm. And I just had no idea that Beth and Tina were going to be such a powerful couple. You know, the reason I am most drawn to bet is actually the way you had written the trajectory of her career. I think it's among the strongest in episodic television, like unlike a Grey's Anatomy, like they're just doctors for the 20 years the show is on the air. And so I always found it highly entertaining how she would be fired from these very high positions. And I always found it really creative, like the idea to make her like the dean of the university it felt like a lot of care was taken with the writing around her career. Where did those ideas stem from? Or is that just the writer's room pitching a bunch of different ideas? Well, it is the writer's room. But no, those ideas stemmed from real life experience and people that I know. And I mean, having spent a little bit of time in broadcast television, I found it very frustrating that people were stuck in those story engine jobs, that a cop was a cop and you couldn't change that. And I had a cop and I wanted her to run for mayor. And it was like, but no, this the series isn't about that. But that's what life is about. So with the L word, with Showtime, we had these opportunities to really explore life. That's career was the one that I felt closest to most drawn to because I came out of an art background and so many of my friends are gallerists, museum curators, artists, and so on. And one of the things that those folks do is teach. It's very clearly laid out that her, the character's mother left her when she was young. And of course, Ossie Davis was so brilliant as her father. Those episodes with her father are among my favorites. Um, Even as he's passing away, I think they're just so brilliantly acted. In a fantasy casting world, was there any actress that you would have loved to see as Beth's mom? I think you have to ask that question of Jennifer. She's had those fantasies many times over. I don't recall having fantasized. I think we probably did have those conversations, but I couldn't pluck the names for you. And I know that it's very fresh for her. It's very fresh for her? Like, did she... Fresh. Was she fresh. Oh, fresh for her. Mm-hmm. Did she want her... And I know that in Gen Q, like, the, the story of the mother comes, you know, has come back around... Was there ever an idea that we were going to see her mother on screen? I think we probably considered it, but I'm sure we considered it. And that's one that we certainly 
would have rolled around. The closest thing to seeing Beth's mom, I think, is probably having Holland Taylor there as Peggy Peabody. <laughs> Where did, And this is like before Holland Taylor was... I mean, who could have predicted how popular she would become? I mean, she was illegally blonde. Taylor was always fabulous. Of course. But like, I mean, I I mean, maybe I'm just viewing this through like L word colored lenses. But how did Holland Taylor come to be Peggy Peabody? Well, the character preceded Holland. But once Holland became Peggy Peabody, she never existed until Holland came along. Um, But no, the, the character, again, was inspired by a number of powerful women I've known in the art world who, you know, rich, powerful women who run boards and who have fabulous daughters who are my friends and peers. So you can gather that I'm talking about, you know, any small group of people I might've known. And we knew that Bet would know those women. And it was a funny, fun, intriguing storyline. Angela Robinson had a lot to do with the actual execution of that character. And then Holland was actually a friend of mine. And I had always wanted to work with her, but she was, I met Holland through a friend of mine, an actress called Suzanne Burtish, a British actress. We hung out. And then when I got to actually bring a part to Holland, it was just a treat. I love that. I love love, uh, the idea of you and Holland Taylor and Sarah Paulson just uh, getting dinner. It was her. way before Sarah. No, I know. I know, but I'm sure present day, I love it. All right, moving on from Bed and Jennifer Beals, I want to talk about the casting of Kate Menig as Shane. And you had said that you were the most nervous about casting Shane. Like you didn't know if anybody could really capture what you had in your mind's eye. Like what yeah. was it specifically about her? Like, was it the voice? Was it just like the easygoing nonchalance? What did you see in her tape? Oh, everything. I mean, she was the, that, that was the character I was most nervous about because there aren't a lot of, actresses there are a few more now that maybe could play a role like Shane but certainly back then there were next to none but also I had an image in my head of this character and when I when I saw Kate's audition tape it was as if I had conjured her from whole cloth I mean she was 100% how I envisioned Shane And then, of course, she brought so much more to it than I could ever imagine. So in this case, did the person you choose have to be really close to the character? You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're like, oh, that's her, like, you're basing that off Kate. I was all ready to compromise. I never in my wildest dreams thought that I was going to find an actor that was the shame that I imagined. And I thought I'd cast somebody and let the character become whoever she was. Right. And then there was Kate. And I know that like there was an original Showtime exec who I think like saw the tape of Kate and was like, I don't get it. Like some guy. Well, we we brought Kate out from New York to audition after that tape. That was back in the days when we actually auditioned actors live, which... We don't anymore. Oh, you mean um, tw- you mean 20 years ago you weren't on Zoom? Believe it or not. 
And <laughs> we sat in this little room at Showtime and we auditioned a number of people. We auditioned Leisha Haley that day. We actually auditioned Leisha for the part of Shane. Mm -hmm. But there was just no question. There was, from the moment I saw her on tape to the moment she walked into that room, everything about Kate was Shane. But it was the same, the same guy, the same president of the network who just said to me, I don't get it. And it was easy to understand his not getting it. I mean, he was a middle-aged straight white man and Kate is just something that that guy might not understand. And he said, I don't get it. But he turned to all of the women in the room me and my colleagues, Rose Trachet was there. There were a couple of other women that were part of our little cabal. And he said, but I can see that you all really believe in this. So I'm going to trust you. You had said that he, he was basically like, okay, I'll give you Kate Menig as Shane, mm -hmm. but you got to do one for me and cast. Obviously, I don't know who this other person it is. Alicia. He, he, I mean, we wanted Leisha in the show anyway, but he loved Leisha and he wanted Leisha to be Shane. That was how he saw it. And he said, I really want, I, this, this actress is so incredible. She's just, I'm, I think that he said something. And, and if you knew this lovely man, you would find it funny too. He said, like, she's the arbiter of hipness. And... <laughs> I mean, I, she kind of is. <laughs> well, yeah, she is. But he, he got that, which is amazing. And I actually went back and created Alice for Leisha. And we, I don't know whether I wrote a whole new character or whether we just shaped a character. So in a way, he was right. Like, he wasn't all wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, he wasn't wrong. He just didn't get Kate. And believe me, he came back to me a year later and said, oh, you, I, now I get it. When it comes to Mia Kirshner, you had said that after the first year, like obviously that first season was very much like based on your life, uh, you, you know, the, the Jenny Marina, like the germ mm -hmm. of Jenny. Mm -hmm. And you said as the seasons went on, Jenny became complicated because Mia was complicated. Mia is much more interesting than me. She's she's much more complex. She's much more provocative than I ever was. So, yes, there was a ton of improv going on that that would make it to the show. Was she the one who brought the most improvisation? She brought a lot. Leisha also is a great improviser. There is one scene that's one of my favorite scenes between Jenny and Alice that was entirely improvised. And it went so off the rails, but it was brilliant. And the whole thing stayed in the show. About like writing the book, right? Like the, 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 like a joke about, she compares it to Monet. That's right. That's the scene. Hey, Alice, you know, there's this crazy weird thing that happens when you write as a writer. Wait, is this a lesson yeah. in writing from yeah. Jenny Schechter? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Let me grab a pen. Get a pad, too. So this thing that happens when you write is you draw from your own life, and then in turn, you take those experiences and you use something called imagination, Alice. Oh, imagination. Yeah. God, so that's the thing you were lacking when you could barely change hey, our names, just huh? Just a second. You guys, do you, do you hear that? Oh, my God, it's Monet. 
Monet has come back from the dead and he wants me to give you a message. He says, I am so sorry for sitting in front of my pond in France and sketching those water lilies and using the water lilies as actual inspiration. Sorry to offend, Alice. Right, right. Oh, wait, he's talking to me. So weird. It's <laughs> crazy. Huh? Okay, I'll tell her. He said don't ever fucking compare yourself to him. And I don't know where it came from, but... I couldn't have written it, and it was brilliant. You know, Mia wasn't the only improviser, but Mia is really an actor's actor, and that's the school of acting that she comes from. And it really just was so rich and irresistible. Something that I've really come to respect and admire about you is this very open door policy that you have with your actors, even when they are like, forget about when the cameras are rolling, like even like as you're prepping episodes or before going into a new season, like I know, uh, like the Shane storyline with her brother, that was entirely Kate Manning's idea. And you thought it was great. You're like, okay. Now, I've interviewed several showrunners and mm-hmm. and also a lot of television writers. And I know that you can put the most brilliant minds in a room, but at the end of the day, whatever Michael Patrick King says goes. And I really respect that you are open to hearing all ideas, even when the clock is ticking how did you sort of harness this very collaborative style of show running? Um, firstly, I didn't know what I was doing. I had never worked in television before. I had no mentors, no template. So some of it was just hapless foolishness. But there are all different ways of working. And I respect any number of ways of working. It's just how I like to work. I really like actors I've found them to be great partners, brilliant collaborators, and I like to work with them. I like to work with writers, too. I like to hear other people's ideas. And, um, you know, still as the showrunner at a certain point, I have to make the ultimate decision. But that decision is largely informed by the collaboration that we have with any number of people. And I'm just a little bit more collaborative than some. We talked about that scene where Jenny and Alice are fighting or having that like very fun moment. Is there anything else, a full episode um, or another scene that you can point to and think we really did something here? It's really hard to do that over the course of the six years of the original show. There were many times when I felt that. There were times when I felt it on set, when I just would be sitting there watching the scene emerge and just thrill at the power or impact of what we were doing. There were times when I was cutting a show and I thought, wow, we really captured something. Like, is there anything relating to, like, Bet and Tina, maybe specifically, if you just narrow it down to them? There are so many Bet and Tina scenes and moments. The fight in, I think it's the finale of the first season, was really powerful to me. Is there a particular season that's a favorite of yours? 
there, there are moments in most seasons. I've said before, the one season I regret is season six, and I'd rather not get into it, but it wasn't the best. Yeah. But one through five, I loved the show. I loved making it. I loved telling the stories we told. And, um, you know, I was trying to end it in, in a cool, interesting way. And I think that maybe it wasn't the coolest and most interesting way. Would you, con- let, let me ask you, you, you know, it's not, re- it's not about season six, but curious with Generation Q on the air, should we as an audience consider Gen Q to be canon or would this be like an alternate timeline slash universe? I would say that Gen Q occupies the same space as the L word. It's, there is a lot of fan fiction. There are a lot of alternate stories, but Gen Q is the story of the L word as it continues into the world, into the future. I know obviously somebody else is running it, but I am curious, like, have you had any creative input, like no matter how small? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm an executive producer on the show. Marja and I talk a lot. Um, it's her show. She tells her stories. She come, comes to me sometimes for feedback, thoughts, running ideas around. There might be one or two things that originated with me, I, but for the most part, it's just me giving her support and feedback. Do you watch the show? Of course. It, like sometimes I do wonder certain scenes are written by you. Some of like the the bet stuff, like some of the speeches that she gives, I don't know. Someone's like, I don't know. Did I like I only go in there and rewrite this? I don't know. This is just me thinking out loud. You don't have to confirm or deny. <laughs> Going back to Gen Q, like you say that, you know, you you watch the show and you're really a fan of it. I often think of the character of Gigi and this actress Sepeda Moathi. I think as soon as she first came on screen, you could immediately see that she had that something special in her eyes. Yes, she does. She absolutely does. Truly. And I worked with Sepeda on a show some years before, after the L Word, when Marja created that character, Sepeda was on my list. And yeah, she's, she's got it. She feels like a character who... exists in that sophistication and sort of fabulosity of the original, right? Yes, she does. She absolutely does. Mm -hmm. The biggest fan reaction really was around like Danny and Gigi. Were you privy to how intensely the fans reacted to that coupling? I was certainly aware of it. Like pretty wild. Like it very much harkened back to the original. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. truly. Quick little commercial break here just to let you know if you are enjoying this interview with Eileen Chaikin and if the L word is relevant to your interests, look for my episodes with Rosie O'Donnell, Guinevere Turner, Roxanne Gay. I did a special on the Lesbian Bar Project. I interview the actors who play Emmett and Ted on the original Queers Folk, you know, Peter Page. I talked to Fortune Feimster about the L word. Plus, Sandra Bernhard, Margaret Cho, Gina Gershon. So just letting you know, those episodes are out there. So just go find them on the podcast app or on YouTube. 
Um, wait, let me ask you, in the original show, if you had had more time, were there any storylines that you really wanted to do, but for whatever reason, you couldn't? Like, whether it be, like, you ran out of time or you didn't have the actor? They would be ancillary storylines. There were ideas that we had that got derailed for one reason or another. There was a minute where I was talking to this iconic Hollywood actress and I created a whole story for her and then she couldn't do it. And so I'm sure that we cast someone else and it became much, you know, it became minor. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, when they take off, they really take off, like with Holland Taylor. How did it feel being on set again for episodes nine and 10? Like you have the characters you created mixed now with these new characters. Like, did it feel, how important was it to you to be there during the filming of those events? It felt incredible. It was, it was thrilling. I'm, you know, I, I don't go only for Jennifer, Kate and Leisha or Shane, Bet and Alice, I really love the show. I love the, the new characters. They too feel like, I guess, maybe my stepchildren. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I have a, a very warm feeling towards all of them. Um, but certainly for something as important as the storyline you're talking about, I want it to be there. It was for me that I was there. It was also thrilling that those two episodes were directed by Kate Menig and Leisha Haley. I love that. Yeah, me too. During the course of the original show, were there any story decisions that you had to make outside of the story? Like I know, you know, with Sarah Shah, he had signed a two-year deal, so she couldn't come back. Um, You know, her career was taking off. What was the most challenging example of this like having to make a story decision outside of what you really wanted well the sarah shahi example is probably the the most cogent i would not have ended that relationship those two actors really cooked together but we made a two-year deal with sarah and she had things to do so i had to write her off the show were there any other decisions like that? I mean, not not in certainly not in that way. I mean, I talked to you about you know the famous actress that you know, strung me along and then <laughs> dropped out. I had to make some quick pivots for that, but there was never any kind of oh you can't tell that story. Showtime was almost unfailingly supportive of the stories we wanted to tell. There was one episode in season one where we crossed a line they didn't want to cross. Oh, what was that? It was, well, it was, I'm not sure how to tell this story, but because there was no censorship whatsoever, but there, we did those cold opens in the first season and they all had to do with sex. And there was one, the, the, the opening sex scene was about autoerotic asphyxiation. And it was just not to someone's taste. And the executive said to me, I don't know. And it's not, it wasn't like a censorship note. It was a taste note. And I remember saying, well, okay, what if it was, it it wound up being the opening in which 
an artist was portraying herself as Mary being being fucked by Jesus or something like that. Right. And I pitched it as an alt. He said, <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. So I think the point of the story is we were never reined in by morality, by any kind of censor's idea of what you can and can't say. And the only time anything came up was when, you know, an executive just said, I don't know if that's going to work for the audience. You had said that you wanted to tell a breast cancer storyline. I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if there were any outside factors that played into Dana and Aaron Daniels being written off the show. Absolutely not. No. Aaron was beloved. The character was beloved. We wanted to tell that story. And I believe that it was because when the writers got together in the beginning of the year, a number of us had experienced that kind of loss in our friend circles. And we wanted to tell a story of loss, life and death loss among a group of lesbian friends, because it means something specific to us. It has a very specific poignancy. And the only real way to tell that story was to be willing to do the most difficult thing. And that is let a beloved character die. You're the person that made this show that has really become like a shorthand way for people to connect and communicate, but yet you're also living in the community and like you're living in the world. What sorts of things did you hear back then? And even now, like I said, outside of Jenny and Dana or, I, I, you know, like what are the types of things that people say to you? I mean, I know people are shocked that Bet and Tina's pool isn't actually outside. <laughs> like what are the more like funny things that people are surprised to find out or to, that people really want to know from you? People talk about the L word to me a lot. And the things I usually hear are the things you want to hear. You know, were you surprised? You know, it's been announced that Jennifer Beals is, is leaving the show. How did she tell you that she was going to leave? Were you surprised or did you kind of known? Is, is it a fact that Jennifer is leaving the show? You know that she's in the first two episodes and the last two episodes of this season. Um, I don't know if it's a fact and I don't know that it's a fact. Um, but, it, you know, in, in part, it was a personal decision having to do with things going on in her life. But Beth and Tina certainly will not end. I mean, you know what happens with Beth and Tina in the final episode. That is not an ending. That's another beginning. So where that goes, I don't know. And I feel the same way about all of these characters. And I feel the same way about about the L word. Let me ask you, you know, with the Showtime Paramount merger, what do you see as some possible options? Like, would you ever do the real L word again? Like reboot that with like a younger cast? I wouldn't, but someone might. Um <laughs> I'm not. Why why wouldn't you? Well, firstly, (laughs) um, I'm firstly, I don't make that kind of television. And although it was my idea and it was really fun to do, um, I didn't do it in a hands-on way. And I don't know that I would go there again just because it's not what I do. 
I also wouldn't be the one to do it now because I think that that kind of show should be made by people in their 20s. Um, You know, something that I was really excited about was I know that you and Jennifer had the rights to adapt The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Yeah. What is the status with that? Um, that the project isn't going forward. I love the book and I hope that somebody makes it. And Jennifer and I are working on a number of things together. Jennifer and I really have a, a great kind of creative, collaborative relationship. And we have several other projects that we're talking about. Yeah, I was I was disappointed to see that like that wasn't because I love that book and so many of my friends love that book. Yeah. Like no other, like what happened? I mean, I don't know. It was, it was just, it was, it, it actually had more to do with business than creative. It was at the time when Fox was buying, Disney was buying Fox and I was in a deal there and this happened and that happened and it just didn't fit in with the new plans for the new company. I guess the, the final question I'll ask you, and thank you so much for your time. Do you feel that you're misunderstood in any way? I hope so. I would hate to be fully known and understood. I mean, I'm sure that there are some misapprehensions about me, but it's not my business to know what they are or correct them. I know you've talked about during the original airing that you would actually read like message, you know, back then there really wasn't social media. So it was like message boards and you would read the comment. We would read posts and sometimes it would like affect you how did you manage to deal with that you just have to decide that you're going to kind of push forward and make choices and stand behind the choices you make are you ever just like all right enough with the l word oh god no no Thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you can mention that you're working on right now? Like anything that we should keep an eye out in the next year? Um, I'm working on a few projects that I love almost as much as I love the L word. And hopefully when they come to fruition, I'll get to talk to you again. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This was this was great. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me, JessXNYC, across all social media, Instagram, and definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel that is Hot Takes and Deep Dives and my name, Jess Rothschild, where you can watch videos of all of these interviews. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. 
Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.